Mark 11 through 25. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it, and they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he, not, he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe, and you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you for your trespasses. This is the word of God. Join with me uh, in a brief prayer. Lord, uh, we come to uh, a kind of strange passage in your word this morning. Um, It has many things in it that at first glance are very hard to understand, and uh, we ask for your wisdom in learning what it is that you have for us to hear this morning. I pray that if there's anyone here who's never heard your gospel before, that it would be very sweet news um, to hear. And for any of us who have heard your gospel thousands and thousands of times, that it would still remain sweet news. That the aroma of your son would be utterly captivating and beautiful to us. Uh, We would behold you in your glory through the face of Jesus Christ. Um, Help us, Lord. Help our unbelief and have mercy on us sinners. In Christ's name, amen. Um, Back when I was a kid, uh, my parents, I was a child of three, and um, I don't know where my sisters were. Anyways, doesn't matter. Um, I remember having to go through like so many terrible visits to uh, model homes. Anybody ever been there have, being dragged? Yeah, they're fantastic when you're an adult, but when you're a kid, they're utterly boring, right? Yes. Yeah, da- thank you, Darren. Thank you. Amen. <laughs> Brother Darren. Yes. All right. Got somebody. Um, 
yeah, endless floor plans and stairs and all that other stuff, right? And they're just they're salivating. Adults are salivating over all that stuff that I just didn't understand. But I remember one time I was getting very hungry, and I so I obviously went in the kitchen of one of these model homes. That's where you would go. And um, I went searching around. I saw a bowl of apples and fruit. So I'm going, yes, satisfying, right? So I go and I, I reach for an apple only to find out what? Yeah, it was plastic. It wasn't real. It was fake, right? A fake apple. Who would do such a thing to a kid? So I mean, at least put, apples are pretty cheap. Come on, you know? I think they put water bottles in the fridges now, but that's about it. So yeah, um, so light, uh, it appeared to be the real thing. I reached for it, and of course, it was plastic. It was a fake. It was a fraud. Um, and so like, like with the plastic apples, um, and what we find here is Jesus has a very similar experience with the, the cursed fig tree that we come to in, uh, in Mark's gospel. And um, he kind of infamously, infamously curses this tree. And we're going to find out why. Um, but Jesus and his disciples, right, they're making their way uh, into Jerusalem. Um, and Mark tells us that he's hungry. And so Jesus does what anybody walking in the Middle East would do. And um, he looks for something to eat off trees. He sees that, uh, uh, we see it right at the opening of our passage, he sees a, a fig leaf is in leaf. Uh, sorry, the fig tree is in leaf. He walks up to it to, what, see if there's anything he could find on it, right? And um, trees in this area have early or, or small, like tiny figs uh, that grow from last year's sprouts. And those early figs uh, appear before the regular harvest. And, and those figs are important because they would, they would feed hungry travelers, pilgrims on the way to Jerusalem, uh, the poor. And I, I mention this because it's probably March or April, right? It's, it's, it's coming up on the week of Passover. And so what that means is that this fully leaved fig tree is not in season, right? It's not in season, but there should be small figs on it. We come to find out what? Nothing there, right? Tree's barren. And so this tree, like the apples that I tried to grab when I was a hungry child, poor kid, um, had the appearance of fruit, but upon closer inspection, right, it's fruitless. And so the next words have confused and they've alarmed and they've perplexed people for days and days. He says this to the tree, verse 14. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. May no one ever grab a bowl of apples from you again, right? Um, it's weird, right? I mean, he's talking to a tree. Is that weird? Some people are saying no. I think it's kind of weird. Uh, the tree didn't do anything wrong, right? The tree wasn't guilty of really anything. It was, it's just a tree. Um, if it weren't for the fact that we're used to Mark, uh, the gospel uh, writer, uh, his way of writing by now, it would be very confusing, I think. But I think we, we've already been exposed to a Markin sandwich before. Can anybody tell me what a Markin sandwich is? Anybody remember? Oh, man. Yes. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah, that's about it. Um, yeah, so we had, we saw it with the, the, um, the woman with the 12 year old, uh, 12 year hemorrhage, right? And then the 12 year old girl. Remember that? That was like way back um, earlier in Mark's gospel. So it's okay if you forgot. That was a while ago. Um, but Mark interweaves, right, two seemingly unrelated things, events or 
maybe a, a story or, or something and, and weaves them together and they both right, tell something about the other. They kind of inform each other. They're interwoven. They're telling something um, about what's coming next and the next story tells about what just happened. And so the narrative structure is like this. Um, if, you're, if you're taking notes, this is a great thing to write down. Um, chapter 11, verse 1, right? Jesus visits the temple, um, and then he curses the fig tree. So that's 11, uh, 12, and 14. And then 11, 15 through 19, he rages in the temple, right? And then the fig tree is dead. So that's 11, 20 to 25. And then Jesus goes back to the temple, 11, 27. So it's... It's temple, fig tree, temple, fig tree, right? There's this interweaving of it, something, there's some kind of connection there that we're supposed to make sense of, we're supposed to notice, okay? Um, and uh, if you're taking notes, um, I've been like struggling with the whole points thing. Sometimes I'm like, points are helpful, sometimes they're not helpful. So if you're taking notes and you like points, first point, the temple, okay? Second point, Fig tree. <laughs> there are your points, okay? So we're good. So, so that's, that's where I'm going, all right? So here we go. Uh, so the temple. Um, we're going to see how intertwined these stories are. So let's keep reading. Verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem. He entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple and he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him. Because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. All right, so the, the temple is significant in Israel. Um, it is the, the central place of religious, right, experience. It's also the center in Israel of political life. Um, so basically, all of life revolves around the temple. And so when you first walk into a temple like this one, uh, the first area, uh, if you're looking at it, right, the first area is called the court of the Gentiles. And so it was for people who are not Jewish, they were allowed to go in the court of the Gentiles. And it's the only part where they're allowed to go. And this is where people were uh, bringing and buying livestock uh, to sacrifice in the temple. And with the time of the year being so close to Passover, we could expect that there were thousands of people moving about. It was pretty chaotic, and you can just couple that with the livestock. It was probably pretty rowdy in there, right? And, and, and this is the one place, right, where non-Jews are supposed to go to find God in prayer. Kind of weird. Like, huh. So it's no wonder that with the selling of animals and the money changers, kind of corruption is, is what we're seeing, uh, and this taking so much space in this place that is supposed to be a house of prayer, right, that Jesus has a strong reaction. And he flips tables. Um, John's gospel actually tells us that he, he takes a whip and he starts whipping these money changers around, right? Whipping, driving them out. Um, kind of wild behavior. And can you imagine the, the chaos of a guy running around doing this, animal stampeding, and then he taught, right? He said, is it not written, quoting prophet Isaiah, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. Of course, with Jesus, right, no action that he does is a random action. Nothing he does is, is 
actually weird, right? It might strike us as weird, but when we look at it, we're going, okay, now I see it. It's deliberate. So if we were well-versed in the Old Testament, we would know three things. Um, we'd be, we, we would know, so we were like little Israelite boys and girls, right? We were growing up, and our, our Israel mothers uh, would have taught us well, and they would have taught us these three things, right? Um, first, when, when the Messiah sh uh, shows up, he's going to come and he's going to purify his temple. That's the first thing he's going to do. The temple's worship. He, uh, Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 26 to 28. Second, he would replace the temple himself. Um, if you want to read Ezekiel uh, chapters 40 to 48, but also uh, prophet Zechariah ch chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. And then third, the last thing is a prediction about what this Messiah is going to do. And so this would have been known. Now I'm going to read straight from Zechariah 14 here, 14, 14 verse 21. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. Right, Jesus shows up to this temple, and he's literally reenacting this prophecy, like line by line, what, what's happening. Um, his claim is that he is Israel's true Messiah, right? He's doing all these three things. He's fulfilling all of these old prophecies. He came in riding on a donkey, as we heard last week. Now he's coming to clean house. He's making the temple a place now, not just for the Jews, but for all nations, right? For the Gentiles, too. No longer would Gentiles be excluded from the inner courts, from the Holy of Holies, uh, they would be welcomed. They would be allowed to enter into God's presence and pray directly to him. And this is wild, this is radical, and this is huge news. Why? I want to stress this because all the way from the beginning of the Bible, right, from the very first opening pages, when you open up your Bible and you read the first three chapters, the beginning of the Bible tells us the main problem that we all have, right? everybody has. There's this, this separation, Jeff, Jeff prayed it, Loved, love your prayer, Jeff, thank you. This chasm, right, between us and God. And the Garden of Eden was a temple, right, it was a temple, it was a sanctuary. It was a place where God's presence dwelled with his first creation, right, his first people, Adam and Eve. And when they sinned, they were what, they were cast out of Eden, and what did God do so they couldn't enter Eden again? Anybody remember? This is like beginning of the Bible, but anybody know? Flaming sword. Yes. Love. I feel like any like anybody who loves Lord of the Rings is gonna like know that, right? Just because it's cool, and you're cool. So thank you. Um, so flaming sword set up right to bar them access to God's temple. God's presence. And this flaming sword, it represents God's just, justice, his judgment, his just judgment. That, that nobody can enter God's presence unless they actually go under that flaming sword again. And what happens if you go under a flaming sword? Just wondering, curious, anybody, anybody try it? No, I mean a sword itself and then a flaming sword, couple, that whole imagery, it's like, okay, that's for sure you're not gonna make it, you're gonna die, um, right? facing God's judgment for the penalty of sin. And that's a huge problem, okay? Big problem. Um, it's a problem we see all throughout the pages of the Bible. When we 
read of the nation of Israel forming. God sets up the uh, tabernacle and then the temple. And and so they build this temple so he can dwell with his people. The chasm still remains, though, right? The problem is still there, right? At At the center of the temple is the Holy of Holies. And only one time in an entire year, on the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur, could the high priest, that's just one person, one representative out of the entire nation of Israel, could actually go into the innermost court and have access to God, just for a brief time, right? So restrictive. And he couldn't even enter unless what? He had a blood sacrifice. Why? How come? Why did he need a blood sacrifice? Because of that What's there? Flaming sword. Come on, man. Flaming sword of judgment, right? That's why. Um, His justice, right? We can't enter God's presence without going under judgment. And so looking back, right, so Israel's history, showing that that picture, we, we know that's a picture, that's a symbol for us to see our need for something greater, something better than this. Only one guy out of an entire nation can go and have access to God. I mean, that's that's so restrictive, right? Um, and, and, and that's just one nation out of many nations. So when, when Jesus quotes the prophet Isaiah, and he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, that is a massive, huge claim. And it's changing everything. Mark's gospel is the only gospel that tells us the full quotation in, in, of Isaiah 56, verse 7. And in doing this, he highlights for us the promise of God to grant full access of worship to foreigners and outcasts. All right, think about that. That no longer, right, do you have to be a citizen of of Israel to worship the living God. No longer do you have to be a high priest to enter into the Holy of Holies and have access to God. No longer do you have to be any of that. You can come from any background, any class, any race, any nation, any background, any place. And how is all that possible? How is this chasm closed? Jesus Christ is uh, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the true, he's the ultimate, he's the greatest sacrifice for atonement. His, his once-for-all sacrifice, I love how Hebrews puts that on the cross, was, was Jesus going under the flaming sword, right, bearing the penalty of our sins that we deserve, right? Jesus was cut off. He was cut by the sword for you. In fact, when he was slashed by that sword, the central place where Israel worshipped, right, and the holy of holies, that we're told in Mark's gospel in chapter 15, if we kept reading, right, all the way to chapter 15, we'd see, chapter 15, verse 38, that the veil that covered the holy of holies was Torn, right? It ripped, shredded when he died on the cross. And so the, 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 all the Bible, the scriptures, they're screaming to us, they're shouting to us, right? That the old covenant is now obsolete. Hebrews puts it that way. Uh, the gospels are putting it that way. The Messiah's come, he's Jesus, and through him you now have access to God. The whole sacrificial system is overthrown because Jesus himself is the ultimate sacrifice. He is the true and the best temple. That's what we're supposed to see. Big stuff, right? Big claims, big things, big changes happening in Israel's history. And that brings us back to the fig tree. 
Okay, so if you're taking notes, you love points, fig tree. Here we are, fig tree. Um, after this big scene that Jesus probably caused, uh, where do they go? They start going back the way they came. Uh, there and back again. Mark 11, verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Okay. So the fig tree is a metaphor. It's a, it's a figure of, of speech that's used to refer to something else. Um, when we were singing one of the songs and it said tongue, um, one of my sons came up to me and was like, this is funny that we're saying like our tongue, that we're worshiping with our tongue. And I'm like, it's a word for mouth, right? It's a metaphor. Kids don't usually understand that until they're a little bit older and they start getting like not the actual literal thing. Um, so metaphor. Anyways, I'm sorry. Just trying to help. Um, probably not helpful. The fig tree was not doing its job, just like Israel is not doing her job as a nation, right? Fig tree is not bearing any fruit, and Israel was claiming to be God's people, but was not bearing any fruit. And man, is there a lesson to learn from this. Um, that just because um, somebody looks like they have it all put together on the outside, right, looks super religious on the outside, looks like they're really good on the outside, doesn't mean that everything's good on the inside. Um, even with our churches, right, we can be busy doing religious activities, we can have meetings and committees and um, all kinds of uh, service projects and, and so many different things, right, that keep us busy, that keep us doing. <coughs> Is this, though, coming from a place in our hearts uh, where our hearts have been changed by the gospel and, and we're doing it for the sake of other people? Or are we just busy doing fruitless activity like these leaders in the temple like these leaves on the fig tree. God doesn't want our busyness. God wants our hearts to be changed by his gospel. He wants to see, he wants you to see your deep need for the love of Christ for you. The one who took the sword for you. And he wants this news to transform you from the innermost parts, right? From the inside of your heart, outside. And he wants that to make a difference each day. And so, I mean, if the temple was the center of life for religious and political life, the center of all of life for Israel, and if Jesus now replaces the temple, that means that what? Jesus is the center now of our life, right? Of all of our life. It means that your life will be different if you're in Christ. So if, if we're a person who is known to be stingy with our finances, right? We have a really tight grip on our money. Maybe the Holy Spirit is moving us to loosen our grip and be more generous. Or if we're a person who gets angry, is it evident that the Holy Spirit is working on you in your life to reduce your anger, your outrages? Or if you're somebody who has been reluctant to forgive somebody else, you've been holding on bitterly to the anger and rage, the frustration that you have against somebody else. Is the gospel moving you towards forgiving somebody who you deem unforgivable because God has forgiven you? Is heart change happening inside of you? Or are you just busy doing stuff for God? Um, I just bring this up because I want you to ask those questions. 
I want you to really stir and, and, and kind of meditate on those questions and ask them of yourself. Pray about it before the Lord and check where you're at. Um, verse 22. Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says this to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Disciples are trying to make sense of what just happened in the temple. Right? Jesus just flipped tables and had a whip. Um, watched him whip. Watch me nay-nay. No. Um, it was crazy, right? The crazy temple experience. What, what just happened? And, um, and so they're trying to make sense of that. And all of a sudden, Jesus just changes key. Is Jesus as distracted as we are? Squirrel, right? Is he as, as distracted? Um, no, right? He's not as distracted. Um, he doesn't go off on tangents. I, I want you to think about it this way. That Jesus just pronounced that the temple and its sacrificial system is coming to an end. Um, that means that the literal house of prayer for Israel is going to be gone. That's Jerusalem's temple. And so you have to imagine the question that people would be asking is, how are we going to pray? Right? Where's the location that we're supposed to go to pray to God? Because you're just saying this temple's now going away. Um, how are we going to do that? And so it's not random, right? Jesus is not crying squirrel, right? There's no tangent here. Um, he is deliberate, and he's jumping right into the topic of prayer. The temple is going away, but Jesus, the true temple, and the community that he creates by his gospel is not going anywhere. So who's going to pray for Cal's Mountain to be thrown into San Diego Bay? And who's going to pray for Mount Soledad to be thrown into the Pacific Ocean? Anybody? Any takers? Couple. Oh, I guess one hand. All right, two hands. Um, obviously, right, Jesus is not being literal here with throwing mountains into the sea. Um, just like earlier when he said, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, right? Was Jesus being literal there, or was there something else going on? Something else going on? Yeah? Hyperbole is going on, right? Hyperbole, another rhetorical device. Um, and, 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 he, and he uses it for dramatic effect. And just as it would be dangerous, right, to think, that prayer makes it possible for us to, to move a mountain into the ocean. It's also dangerous for us to think that unanswered prayer is a result of us not having enough faith. Dangerous. Right? Just because we pray something, it doesn't mean that, our, that we're, first of all, praying perfectly. It also doesn't mean that what we're praying for is actually God's will. Um, I, want, I, want, I just want to think for a second. Think about Jesus, right? In the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he died, what did he pray? He prayed, not, uh, he did say, not what I will, but what you will. But he said, remove this cup from me. Right? Take this cup from me. 
And when he was saying that, he was asking for God to take the cup of judgment away. And that was a, a, a prayer that God could not and would not answer. If Jesus had an unanswered prayer because that part of his prayer was not in alignment with what God's will was, right? isn't it possible that the same thing could and does happen to us with our unanswered prayers? Um, I mentioned that just because I don't want anybody to be discouraged, and I don't want you to be under like the dangerous teaching of prosperity, health, wealth, all that stuff, you know, where if you just had enough faith, your loved one would not be in the place that they're at right now. You know, that kind of stuff. Just avoid that, please. It's horrible stuff. Uh, dangerous stuff. The fig tree cursing is not just about Israel. Um, it's about us, too. Do we look like an in-leaf fig tree with fresh fruit? Are we a bowl of fresh apples, right, not plastic ones, ready to be eaten? Or are we barren and are we fake? Do we have the busy schedule full of so much activity, uh, but are our lives empty of prayer? Is our root, is the root of our tree, is it withered? Do we find our fruit tree barren? Or are there figs too? Um, I don't want to keep judgment on anybody saying these things. Uh, as I reflected this week on these questions, I thought of many areas in my life where I'm going barren, <laughs> not so great, withered, you know. Some areas, thankfully by the gospel, there's some fruit there. Oh, okay, hey, I see a little bit of fruit. But God's word wants us to inspect our lives, our trees today. So where are we? And have you come to the cross again, the place where Jesus, right, was cut by the flaming sword? dashed for you in your place. From that place of grace, are you beginning to change from the inside out? I want to end with something that's very practical and that can be super transformative for a community like ours. Um, there's something that would radically change so much in our lives and in our church and the community around us if we practiced it. Jesus ends in verse 25 stating that for God to hear our prayers, not only do we need to have faith, right, but we need to be experiencing and extending forgiveness to others around us. So I'm going to read this, verse 25. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If, any, if you have anything against anyone, so that your father, wow, I'm going to say this one more time. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. How important is it that we forgive others around us, that, that we restore broken relationships in our midst? He says it here, and if we remember the Lord's Prayer, which we prayed earlier together, he says it there. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. There's this close connection between receiving and 
So being somebody who has received forgiveness from God and then being somebody who can extend forgiveness readily to your neighbor. If we're unable to forgive others of their sins, do we see our own need to be forgiven? Or are we still operating in our life as if God is still our judge and not our father? Don't raise your hand, but how many people are struggling to forgive somebody right now? look at verse 25 again. Notice the second half that Mark uses, this word for God, that he's never used before. In fact, this is the only time that he's going to use it in the entire gospel. You can read, look for it with his disciples, right? It's the only time the whole gospel where he uses it in relationship to them. What word is this? Father. Father is the word. Just like opening... Uh, The opening of the Lord's Prayer, right? What do we say? Our Father who art in heaven. In Christ, God is your Father and he is not your judge. That changes things, right? You don't have somebody looking around the corner waiting for you to to mess up, to fumble the ball. You've got an advocate. You've got a Father who loves you, who cares for you, who's taking care of you in every way, who sees you and hears your needs, knows them deeply, intimately. And he forgives you, right? So you can forgive others readily around you. You're not under the sword anymore. Jesus took the sword for you. You're not an orphan. You're a child, a son and a daughter of the living God in Christ. Let's pray. Father, you who are in heaven, we ask you to hear our prayer now. Help us to see and know and experience your great love for us in Jesus Christ. Please turn our our withered and our barren hearts and hands into fruitful trees with ripe fruit, Lord. Not false fruit, not fake fruit, but, but good fruit. We would ask that you would do this by your powerful, bountiful, and amazing grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Friends, let's stand together. If God has done such wonderful things for us, how could we not keep from praising him?